Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the second part of our full interview with David Pierce, where we discuss FX exposure management and GPS capital markets. David Pierce has over three decades of experience in all aspects of foreign exchange, international banking, and trade finance. His extensive experience in structuring hedging strategies, multi-tiered transactional exposures, utilizing derivative products, makes his advisory services highly demanded by multinational corporations. David has also appeared as an expert on CNBC and in many business publications such as the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. In the episode of today, expect to learn what does a broker think about financial risk management and FX exposure, why is FX exposure a critical component of corporate treasury management, how has the recent inflation and interest rates rise impacted FX derivatives? And like always, much, much more. David is a reference in the field, and we are very grateful for having him on the show. He appears regularly on CNBC to discuss the financial market, and it's an honor to have him on the podcast. We truly hope you will enjoy the episode. And if that is the case, when you think about how you found our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our only request to you. The only way we can get more and more amazing guests like David and get more people to learn about treasury is thanks to you. So if you enjoy what you hear and maybe learn a thing or two, please consider following the show, leaving a review, or sharing this episode to help others discover it too. On another note, the conversation we had with Dave and Alex was really insightful. And we discussed about ways we could collaborate further together. If you'd like to get in touch with Dave or Alex, we have worked together on a link where you can book a demo from GPS Capital Markets and explore how their team can actually help you. Head to the link in the description or to gpsfx.com slash book dash a dash demo. On another other note, this episode is brought to you by Automation Boutique. Automation Boutique is an hourly treasury, finance, and risk management with tailored automation solutions. They believe treasury and finance can lead your organization strategically, drive innovation, and provide key insights. We partnered with Automation Boutique as we really like their approach to innovation and how they help the treasury industry. For this partnership, they came up with an automation scan that can help you see if there are automation opportunities in your internal processes. It is totally free, non-intrusive, and only takes about 10 minutes. If you want to have a look, head to the link in the description or to automationboutique.com slash corporate treasury 101. And with all that being said, please welcome David Pierce. I really like the part where you mentioned that basically uh, treasury, when everything goes well, that is fine. Treasury doesn't get any credits, but when stuff or whatever hits the fan, uh, <laughs> the treasury gets the blame. To be a bit geeky uh, myself as well, and to name them one of my favorite movies, Batman, treasury is the hero we need, but we don't deserve at the end of the day, right? Because yeah, exactly. That, that's what we do. <laughs> exactly that. So to get back in that FX risk management and exposure, I'm a bit curious. So we had a question around how the brokerage plays a role in managing FX exposure. I think you mentioned it already, right? You help companies in a consulting way 
to identify their exposure, basically, and gain visibility on it. Do you help them manage it at all? And I mean, free trade phase, such as there are such things as natural hedge, for instance, which privacy wouldn't be too much in your benefits, let's say, because if there is a natural hedge, hedge sorry, then you don't really need a, an FX product. So do you play a role in that as well? And how do you overall come into play when it comes to managing that exposure? You know, thanks for throwing me a softball question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just for that. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but we are the masters of helping clients identify those natural hedges. We actually have two completely different software tools to help clients identify those. And let me kind of explain the differences between those two. And and I'll give you maybe a story behind one. So if you don't mind me going off on stories, I kind of like to tell stories. So the first one is what we call our intercompany netting tool. And this is something that we see a lot of multinationals have where they've got manufacturing facilities all over the world and they sell their products to their different subsidiaries and then those subsidiaries sell them out. So they've got payables and receivables back and forth thousands of items a month. And they really, traditionally, what they've done is just every entity is send out the wires in the different currencies and received wires in their different currencies. And it's just been kind of a mess. And a lot of people say, well, it's just within the company. It doesn't make that big of a difference. Well, it really does. Because if you've got two entities that both say have a $100,000 wire and they both, one's in England and one's in France, and they're on opposite sides of the market. One buys, one sells. There's a spread in the marketplace. There's a bid-ask spread. And depending on who you're dealing with and what time you do the deal, there could be a one, two, three, four percent spread in that. Whereas you could just net that within the company at zero cost with just an accounting transaction. And we recognize that. So here's an example of what we did for a client of mine. So this is a company was a freight forwarding so they would like, they would go and they would send um, a truck to BMW in Germany and pick up BMWs. And that truck would drive the BMWs down to the port, put those BMWs on a ship. Then the ship would sail to Miami. When the ship got to Miami, all of a sudden their U.S. entity would meet the ship in Miami, pay the customs duties, take the cars off the ship, put them on trucks or trains and deliver them to the dealers. Well, the Germans who got the contract for this, this shipping, they in turn had to pay the expenses for the U.S. entity, for the customs duties, for the moving them onto the truck or the train, and then the truck and the train to the dealer, all those expenses. So they would have to pay those expenses to them. Well, this company had about 20,000 of those payments intercompany a month, and they added up to about 200 million U.S. dollars worth of trades. And at the time, they were sending wires for every one of these, 20,000 wires. And they were paying about $20 a wire. So 20,000 wires times $20, all of a sudden you're talking $400,000 a month in wire fees. Times that by 12, you know, you're talking almost $6 million. It's a lot of money. That's just in fees. And then they are exchanging about $200 million in FX, which is a lot as well. There's bid-ass spread on that. Well, we put them on the intercompany netting system, and guess what? Now they've got like 114 entities around the world. Each entity either gets one wire, 
or they send one wire every month. So they send 114 wires. Well, times 20 bucks, 114 wires, that doesn't sound like a lot of money now, does it? And then they reduced the amount of FX that they were doing from around $200 million a month down to about $7 million. Wow. I mean, incredible, right? And the average spread, because they had companies in all kinds of crazy countries, right? Their average spread globally was over 2%. So if you, if you save somebody 2% on $193 million a month, all of a sudden that becomes real money. And guess what? We net everything together. Every entity gets one payment, one receivable, one payable, one receivable, and we facilitate that. But guess what? When we get clients like that, they're not going to go anywhere else because we take and put a lot of effort into building a system that will facilitate that. Okay, so that's one way. Okay, second way, there's three ways actually. I can back up. So let me go and tell you about the second way. Second way is we talked about having these exposures out there that are kind of hidden. We've had clients with as many as 15 different ERPs in their company because they've gone out and bought and sold and mergers and acquisitions. So they end up with a lot of historic ERP systems and they don't talk to each other. So we've built an interface where we can go out and talk to the different ERP systems, gather all of their exposure data and put it in one spot. And then they can say, all right, we can now see where all of your, what your net exposure as a company is. And then we can see what your exposure is by entity. And then we can also even drill down in and we can see, all right, which GL line items have exposure. So they can track and see, oh, you know what? We've got a whole bunch of cash sitting over there. We may want to bring that back because it's hitting us from an exposure standpoint and we could use the cash over here. We didn't even know we had that. So the visibility is a big deal on that one. And then we give them a global net number, what their total exposure is. And they say, all right, you can hedge this out. And we usually hedge it out a month at a time. And we can continue to to move these hedges in in and out, but we hedge the global total. So if you've got you've got one entity that is long fifty million euros, another entity that's short forty million euros, we hedge ten million euros, but we send out contracts for ninety million euros to this, these companies. So each subsidiary has a hedge. Now, why is that important? Well, if you've got an entity in France and an entity in the United States, they're taxed separately and they've got to show gains and losses on their local financials before consolidation. And so it's really important for them if they've got exposures to have a hedge to offset that locally. And that really helps companies manage that exposure not on a local basis, but as a corporate basis as well, because we are netting everything at the corporate. So we reduce the amount of hedges we do, but we also give the advantage to each subsidiary to have hedges on their books. That's the second one I was thinking about, and I, and I realized I got a third one too. Cash flow hedges. This is where we're forecasting, right? We're looking into the future and we're saying, we think we're going to have these exposures out there. We actually have a cash flow hedging tool that's also a fork that does forecasting as well. And as part of the forecasting, you can have every subsidiary put their forecast in there by currency. And we will, again, net that together. And we only do one net trade, but we give the hedges. Ooh, sorry, I didn't mean my, hit my. We give hedges to all of the different subsidiaries. 
And so even when we're doing these forecasted trades, we can actually net that, take away the natural hedges and show clients how much natural hedging they've got. And it's a great tool because we actually have graphics and stuff that we can say, all right, this is what your total exposure is. This is how much of your exposure was naturally hedged. And here's how much we hedged with contracts. And we could actually show cost savings to clients based off of the natural hedges that we do. And I could go on for like, you could tell, I could go for three hours talking about this and getting into the details, but I love this stuff because you know what? There are some places, some brokerages will say, we don't want clients to know anything about natural hedges because that costs us volume. We don't feel that way. We feel like, you know what? If we can show them their natural hedges, and a lot of people don't hedge because they just assume they've got natural hedges. Well, but if we actually show them exactly what they are and we can show them what their unhedged position is, we can do a better job of managing their risk. And again, if we're taking care of our clients, showing them how to do it right, they're going to be loyal customers to ours. They first and foremost, let me tell you that we love stories. So perfect. Thanks a lot oh, for that. I'm a storyteller, so I I go on. Can hear that. Can hear that. And what I like as well in what you what you explain here is that basically what you're breaking down is it could be seen as cannibalizing your own business, right? Because as you mentioned, as a brokerage, you want to do as much volume as possible, but as soon as you help companies net their exposure, their transactions, all of a sudden you have less business on that aspect. But I like how that leads to, at the end of the day, building huge trust with your clients because you're definitely, yeah. I mean, it seems like you're doing what's best for them on that, on that particular point. But we, we really do. We believe more in taking care of our clients and doing the right thing than just trying to get more volume out of them. That's the right thing to do. And so it's corporate treasury one one So can we just quickly define, because I mentioned this, actually, I might fall here, but you, can you quickly explain us what natural hedging is? Sure. Natural hedging is, let's take it from the standpoint of a European union company that's got their functional currency as euros. And if you have, let's say that they buy an entity in the United States and that entity in the United States is making products and they are selling their product in euros, okay? Not through the parent, but maybe they're just selling it separately in euros. So they've got a euro receivable. They might also have a euro, euro payable back to the parent because they've got an intercompany loan, okay? So when they get those receivables in, they could just keep them in euros and send them back to pay for that intercompany loan. That's a natural hedge, and they've got that set up naturally. So... The other way people do it a lot of times is, let's say that same U.S. company, let's say they're just doing business in the United States, rather than having the European entity loan them euros, they would go get a loan in U.S. dollars locally so that all the proceeds that the company gets from selling their product in U.S. dollars are going to go to pay off that U.S. dollar loan, eliminating foreign exchange exposure. So just try to find ways to match up the currency you're doing business with to what your payables and receivables are. Is that a simple enough explanation? 100% makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I like the way you've put it. Can we, can we quickly break down what's... Because I'm guessing exposure, trading, foreign exchange rates, value between currencies. How has the recent inflation and interest rates rise impacted FXD relatives in terms of 
everything you can, you can think of cost, volatility, availability, risk. I guess this has huge impact, right, on FX trading. Can you walk us through what has been happening here and what are the consequences? Yeah, if every country moved exactly the same way at the same time, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But that's not what we have seen. We've actually seen some yield curves, what we call invert, go different directions where, you know, you might have been going along like this and then all of a sudden they've crossed lines. So currencies that used to be really inexpensive to hedge are now more expensive to hedge and vice versa. So, and let me back up a little bit and talk about that. When you're hedging in the currency markets, the underlying cost for hedging comes from the interest rate markets. So if interest rates are at 6% in one country and 3% in another country, there's a 3% difference in those interest rates. That's going to be the expense. Now, it's not always an expense depending on which side of the market you're on. It actually could be to your advantage if you're on the right side of the marketplace. So it really has changed a lot of the trading dynamics because if you look at you look at how some of the different currencies are trading in the world, there's some countries that have actually been, it's been advantageous to move, maybe purchasing or selling to different countries because the yield curves have changed. And so it has made things different. It cha has changed the world, probably not as dramatically as companies borrowing, but it really has is moving around where people are buying and selling products from. And as you know, in our global economy now, we're very fluid and we can get things made about anywhere and get them sent to us. But it really has made a big change in what's going on. Now, the availability, the availability of hedges, I feel like the availability has tightened up a little bit. Volatilities have gone up because we've seen a lot bigger movements in currencies. And so the market has tightened as far as the availability, the cost and the risk structure, underlying risk of putting on hedges has gone up. So of course, we're going to have to change the availability or the, the cost of them. You know, people either have to pay more for them or there's going to be less available. It's just the law of supply and demand. And then we talk about risk. The risk factors have gone up. And when we look, I mentioned, and this is a little bit before the interest rates, but I mentioned, you know, with COVID, risk factors went through the roof because volatilities went crazy because trade changed dramatically during that time frame. So in the last two years, it's really a whole new world. And one of the things that I've noticed is there's a lot of people in treasury that have been in treasury maybe 10 years, which is pretty experienced person, right? Someone's been doing it for a while. Well, but since they've got into treasury, they've never had a huge downturn in the market. There's never been a time when currency rates were extremely volatile like we've seen in the last year or two. And so all of a sudden, these people who've just assumed that, ah, you know, currencies are not that risky, there's not a lot of volatility, you don't have to do that much. All of a sudden, there's like, what happened? Because the rug was pulled out from under them. And it's a whole new world. And old codgers like myself, who've been here for 35, 37 years, I've seen this come and go many times. And so sometimes I give people advice and they just shake their head like, I don't know what this old guy's talking about. But I'm about preparing for the worst, not preparing for the best case scenario. That's super interesting, Dave. I, I like that perspective you gave that it's mainly driven by the fact that interest rates are changing differently in different countries. And that's like driving investments differently, which is like completely throwing 
FX into extreme volatility. Yeah, is that, that, that really that what's really happening? Is that uh, you know, when you look at, for instance, the United States, obviously we've we've had interest increases regularly for the last couple of years. There's other companies that have been actually keeping their interest rates really low. And when you when that happens, if you've got a country whose interest rates are not rising and one that is rising, the disparity gets greater, which means the the cost of hedging is increasing. We look at China. China's been keeping their interest rates really quite low. And so we have actually seen the exchange rates move where the U.S. dollar has actually gained quite a bit of strength against China, which means the Chinese remnant is weakened. Just basic economics. Um, money flows towards capital. So if towards returns. So if you can get 6% return in the United States versus a 2% return in China, where do you want your money? You want your money in the United States, right? So it makes sense that the Chinese RMB would weaken. People want money out of there into a place where they can get a higher return. That's just basic economics. And so that's one of the things that has really managed to push the currency markets around is the different speeds that countries are raising their interest rates. There's also, I mean, after COVID specifically, right, there was this trend towards a lot of companies um, moving away from this global economy towards a more localized one, right? You had Apple move some, just as one like notable example, uh, announced that they're going to start producing iPhones in the US, etc. Do you see an overall trend towards a reduced globalization? I mean, seeing as you're like a huge facilitator in that, or is that something that you think we can't get out of? Yes, probably both. Uh, there is a trend towards reduced globalization, but there's only so many things that you can do that with, right? I can't grow tropical fruit where I am because we have snow on our mountains in the wintertime. So I can't grow oranges here. So, you know, I, if I want an orange, I've got to get it from someplace that can grow it, right? So there's there are limiting factors in, in what I can do that. And the other limiting factor is cost, obviously. I cannot build something as cheap here in the United States as I can build it in China. Quality might be better, but I can't build it as inexpensively. And frankly, the United States right now, even if we've had this runaway inflation and we have interest rates keep going up, but guess what? Our employment is not going down. We're almost at full employment. We don't have enough workforce to meet the needs of building all those things. So that's a real struggle. Now, Mexico, which is just south of us, they have a workforce that has capability and they've got people that need jobs down there. So instead of making things in China, I see people bringing it a little bit closer to home, say you're in the United States, Mexico, because transportation, shipping, the availability of things is much quicker. So doesn't necessarily mean we may not be manufacturing things overseas, but maybe a little closer to home and in Europe, you know, maybe not China, but maybe more Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, places that have capacity. Super clear. Well, you're not I don't think so. You're, you're, you're the well, I'm, getting, I'm getting old enough to, you know, I'm going to retire one of these days. You know, give me another, give me another 10 years and I'm done. So, you know, it's, I think that we, there's still a bright future in this. Yeah. It's, there's good runway still. It's a good living. So good thing to do.